I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I trust you are all doing quite well. Let me get my camera adjusted. There we are. Ah, glorious day here in Dallas, Georgia. I hope that the weather is fine where you're at. Let's get started. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me move over to that. Hello, Henry. It's good to see you again. All right, now he's finishing up from chapter 1. In chapter 1, uh, he is beginning his defense of his apostleship, if you will, and his ministry there in Corinth. Corinth has proven to be a very challenging place for Paul. Um, some, For some reason or other, they are very difficult, a very difficult church. They are a church of excesses. And they always seem to go over the top with a lot of things. And apparently, uh, Paul's detractors and his enemies seem to have driven their stake in the ground there in Corinth. And they faced off against Paul. And they're doing the best to lead the church away from Paul. And so this whole letter is about Paul regaining their confidence, regaining uh, his reputation that has been sullied. All right, I have to uh, interject something here. Paul is not unused to trouble. He's experienced troubles his entire ministry. I think what sets Corinth apart is, as far as I can tell, this church is the one, the only one that Paul had this kind of problems with. His enemies were from within the church itself. And I think that's what grieved Paul more than anything. So he wrote the first letter to them. And if you recall 1 Corinthians, it, there, was a le- it, there was a lot of discipline involved there. Um, there were uh, improper relationships that he had to deal with, incestual relationships. And there was the way over the top uh, use of the spiritual gifts. Uh, or misuse of the spiritual gifts, I would say. Uh, they were using the um, communion meal, the communion supper, uh, as a way of division, dividing. Uh, it was terrible. There were a lot of things going on there. And Paul wrote a pretty strict letter. And apparently, uh, there's another letter he wrote that we don't have. And he's kind of referring to that in this letter. Uh, He decided, he said, I made up my mind that I was not going to make another painful visit to you. Well, his first visit was when the church was founded. He made a second visit, which we find out about later on in this book in 12.14 and 13.1. And the second visit probably occurred between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 
So he made a little jaunt over there. And uh, apparently, if I'm reading this chapter right, uh, it didn't go well. Uh, he was confronted, apparently, and he probably confronted, and it was probably pretty ugly. So he said, uh, I made up my mind. I was not going to make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but whom I've grieved? He was afraid of a severed relationship irreparable severed relationship with that church. So he decided he wasn't going to go back in the heat of the moment. I, if I grieve you, who's left to make me glad? But you, whom I've grieved. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Now, this is, he's writing about a particular person who's been the cause of serious offense in Corinth and upon whom church discipline has been imposed. All right, the offense in question probably took place during Paul's immediate visit to Corinth and may have been the occasion of his writing the severe letter, which we don't have, demanding the punishment of the offender. So there has been a confrontation. And you know, there's there's nothing more uncomfortable than church discipline. I have rarely seen a church handle it correctly in my point of view. Um, church discipline isn't about punishment. It's about restoration. When someone has offended to the point that the church has to disfellowship them or to punish them in some way, it's always with the intent of bringing that person back into the fold. So that's what Paul's getting at here next. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive. Hello, Mr. Joseph. Good to see you, John. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If someone is punished, or disciplined is probably a better word. Someone is disciplined by the church and they do not express sorrow over their sin that led them to this thing, led to this discipline, then that should be proof to you that they are probably not a believer. But when discipline is rendered and sorrow is the result, and grief is the result on the fact on the part of the of the offender that should tell you that their heart belongs to Christ and that they need to be they need to be protected they need to be brought back i urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him another reason i wrote you was to see if you would stand the test 
and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. When we forgive, this is a really important subject for me. When we forgive in the biblical sense, what you're really telling the offending party is that as of this moment, you owe me nothing. Because to be honest, when someone offends us, when someone hurts us, uh, we want retribution. We want payback. You know, they, they owe us something. If someone hurts me or someone steals from me, they need to make compensation for that sin, for that thing that they did to me. When you forgive somebody, you're saying you owe me nothing. From this moment on, you owe me nothing. We're not saying we forget it. But we are saying from this moment on, you owe me nothing. And we will live as if this did not happen. That's the biblical sense of forgiveness in my understanding of it. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. So Paul's saying, when I show up, if you've forgiven this man and brought him back in, when I show up, I won't mention it. If you forgive him, I forgive him. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and I found the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. He was waiting for Titus for some reason. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we're an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Um, a Christian life properly lived will bring about two responses. To those who are being drawn to God, we're going to be a breath of fresh air. We are going to be the the aroma, a pleasing aroma. <laughs> we're an aroma that brings life. I know that when I was in high school, toward the end of my high school career, my senior year, I was starting to grow tired of the partying. I didn't stop, but I mean, it just, I found myself attracted to the Christians in my high school. Now, I didn't become a Christian while I was in high school, but I was attracted to the Christians in high school. There seemed to be a sense of peace and relaxation uh, when I was around them. I could be who I wanted to be. I didn't have to carry on the pretense of being this party animal that I was trying so hard to be. I I was at peace when I was around them. I was attracted to them. I was part of the crowd who are who was being saved. I was being drawn by the Holy Spirit to God. But there are those who the very presence of a Christian elicits 
anger and rage. To those people, we're the aroma of death. Death to their way of life. Death to the things they hold dear. In today's politically charged environment, it's it's becoming very, very evident that there are those who are violently opposed to the Christian faith and therefore those of us who proclaim it. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that uh, within a generation of two, there will be very sharp dividing lines drawn and that Christians will be held in contempt and we will be the focus of rage and anger just because we're Christians and because our life stands in opposition to the life that they wish to promote. I won't go into any more details than that, but I think we're seeing it now. Um, It's to one group of people, we're the aroma of life. To another group of people, we are the aroma of death. It's kind of like um, a sacrificial system in Judaism. People bringing a sacrifice, worshiping God. The aroma of the sacrifice, the flesh being burned, the flesh being roasted, the put on the fire, the slaughtering, all that is part of a worship experience that if they're truly worshiping God, brings them closer to God. They love it. But other people who don't find Christianity or do not find Judaism um, palatable, it's disgusting. It's revolting. Today, there's there are those who find Christianity revolting. And they find Christianity disgusting. And to them, we are the stench of death. And Paul asks a question and says, who's equal to such a task? Who can pull the who is equal to being this kind of a person who is living their life in such a way that we are the aroma of life to one and the aroma of death to the other? Well, he answers it in sec in Second Corinthians chapter three. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And in verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity of those sent from God. Again, one of the things that sets Paul apart and Christian preachers apart in his day, true Christian preachers, they didn't do it for the money. There were professional speakers who would come into a town, set up a small school and teach um, logic and debate and all these things. And they would charge money, gather a bunch of students or acolytes, and they somehow made money off of making speeches sounds like some politicians and positive mental attitude speakers today. Um, You can find these people that are making an exorbitant amount of money presenting a product through their fancy words and their speaking. 
to promote positive mental attitude. Back in my day, uh, there were a lot of those positive mental attitude speakers, and they made a lot of money. Um, they weren't Christians, not all of them. And they promoted a lifestyle that could be had, and they convinced you with their fancy words and their fancy speeches. And there were a lot of those back then in Paul's day. Paul says, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as though sent from God. Paul would speak the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. And it's amazing to me that Paul, the most brilliant mind I think the church has ever produced, was relegated, and I don't say that in a negative sense, was relegated to presenting a simple gospel, a simple formula, if you will. We are saved, justified through faith, by the grace of God. No fancy entrance requirements, no hidden codes, no secret language, no um, secret organizations or handshakes. (laughs) You were justified by grace, justified by faith through grace, And he says, we don't do this for money. You know, it's it's, uh, this church at Corinth to me is such a puzzle. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how it unravels in the rest of this book. Um, But Paul does unravel it. I think you'll find out that uh, Paul very capably unravels the puzzle. Uh, That is Corinth. Well... This is a short one today. Well, it was a short chapter. And I'm thinking with my mouth open and I've got no more thoughts. So I am going to bug on out of here and I will see you folks tomorrow for 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's my coffee. I'm Mr. G. I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.